0: Well, good morning. I'm not going to pretend like there's not a level of nervousness here, but um, it's encouraging singing the song, um, the Reformation song, and that phrase, Gloria, Gloria, glory to God alone is a nice reminder for myself and hopefully others as well that it's not about myself. (laughs) So glory to God alone, and um, that's what our prayer is. Um, We are in Deuteronomy, chapter 13, verses 1 through 4. I'd like to start us off real quick, though, with a rhetorical question. So, do you believe the Bible is the ultimate authority in your life? Okay? Okay. Just think about that. Even if you went to seminary or you never went to seminary or you've been in the ministry for 20, 30, 40 years, this isn't a question just for a select group of people. This is a question that all of us should ask ourselves, right? And for most of you, I'm going to guess that answering the question, do you believe the Bible is the ultimate authority in your life? You'd probably say yes. That's not necessarily a controversial claim. Christians for hundreds of years have taken the stance that the Bible is ultimately authoritative because we believe that the Bible is the Word of God. And if there's nothing higher than the authority of God, then therefore the Bible we consider as the ultimate authority for us. So even though that's not very controversial to ask it that way, I think I can ask the same question, and maybe a little bit of a different way, and just let it sink in a little bit, okay? Do you show by your life that you believe the Bible is the Word of God? Okay? Do you show by your life that you believe the Bible is the Word of God? Do we treat the Word of God like it rules every part and every minute of our life, like it should rule all of our thoughts? rule all of our words, rule all of our actions, when we choose to marry, when we choose to pick a career, when we choose to go to a school, do we consider what the Bible has to say about it? Or maybe we just view the Bible as some other book, and it just sits on a shelf and gathers dust for a number of years, and as you could imagine, we as Christians are not known to be the most consistent of people. We are walking contradictions. Um, we will admit and say that sin is wrong, and yet what is the very thing that we are probably better than anything at is sin, okay? We talk about how this life is not the end, and there's something more that comes afterward, but then if you're like myself, you find yourself living as if this was the only life, Okay? You see, when we say that the Bible is our ultimate authority, we are saying a lot more than just, I like the Bible, or I read it, or I agree with it. When we say that the Bible is our ultimate authority, we're making a worldview claim, okay? So this worldview claim essentially goes like this. I'm going to view this world and this life in whatever way that this book tells me to view it, And then I will live my life in the way that this book tells me to live it. So it becomes the very lens through which we examine all things. Things like life itself, concepts like truth or love or justice, concepts like personal identity and who you are, maybe morality and ethics, what's right and wrong, What parenting should look like, what the government should look like, it becomes like a pair of glasses that we put on and we view all things through the lens of this book right here. Our problem as Christians is that, as we already concluded, we are sinfully inconsistent with what we profess. We fail to view this world and this life and even the Bible itself through the lens of Scripture, through the lens of What the Word of God really means. And we even believe that people should be, that we as Christians should be people of the book, so to say, and we often find ourselves just being people of a particular passage or people of a favorite preacher or something like that. So, my goal today is not to show that the Bible is the Word of God. My goal is that together we could look at this passage and that we might see that the Word of God presents itself as the ultimate authority which should rule our entire existence and that it's by that authority of the word of God that we examine all things and that there's nothing else on par with it. There's no other authority that matches up with the authority of the word of God. So our main point for today is that you must be ruled by the word of God you must be ruled by the word of God. That seems easy enough, probably. So for some brief context about this passage, um, not everyone has read Deuteronomy. Not a lot of people are used to the book or the layout of it. But in Deuteronomy, you basically read through it and you hear time after time after time after time, God is giving command command after command after command after command after command to not commit idolatry, to fear the Lord, to hold fast to him, and Moses is essentially preparing the Israelites to cross the Jordan, and it's basically their manual, and they're going to have to read this and meditate upon it and be like, this is how we are to live to please our Lord in the promised land. And then in chapter 13 is when God finally gives some specific examples As to ways in which people might be tempted to commit idolatry. Ways in which people might be tempted to abandon their Lord to go seek a false God. So our first point today is do not be ruled by persuasive and rebellious voices. And that key word is ruled actually. So beginning in verses 1 through 2, it says this, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them. If we stop right there and just examine who we're talking about, okay, immediately you realize that this isn't just like the average run-of-the-mill Israelite, right? Most of us understand that. The text talks about a prophet and a dreamer of dreams, okay? And you don't have to be super brushed up on your Old Testament history to know that they're kind of a big deal. So this isn't just a king, it's not just a commander. Who do they speak on behalf of? Prophets and dreamers speak on behalf of God. And it's not just any prophet or dreamer, right? it says, a prophet or a dreamer of dreams who arises among you. Now, you could probably think of all sorts of pagan nations that surrounded Israel, right? The Philistines and the Canaanites and Babylon and all these nations, but we're not talking about a prophet or a dreamer of dreams from there. We're talking about a prophet and a dreamer of dreams from the midst of of Israel, so pick your pick your name right—Isaiah or Moses or Jeremiah or Hosea or Jonah or Elijah or someone like that. If you want a dreamer, pick you know Joseph and Daniel. Um, but either way, this is the kind of people that we're talking about. Whoever you pick, this is exactly who we have in mind here in this kind of a passage. We're talking about a prophet or a dreamer, or a dreamer from the covenant people of God, arising among them. Now, if we were in Deuteronomy chapter 18, okay, we probably wouldn't be very troubled by the first two verses. And some of you know what I mean, okay? When you think of what is considered to be the standard test for a prophet, most people are thinking of Deuteronomy 18, verses 20, verse 22, when it says, When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass, or come true, that's a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously, and you need not be afraid of him. So at this point, if you're just looking at the first two verses of Deuteronomy 13, okay, you're probably not that intimidated, right? Who cares if this is a prophet or a dreamer of dreams? Let them come forth with their sign or their wonder, and if it doesn't come true, they're not of the Lord, and if it does come true, it must have been a word from the Lord, And that's what most of us would probably conclude based on this kind of standard test for a prophet. Except the problem is that God kind of throws us a curveball in chapter 13. Um, It says this, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, right? In Deuteronomy 13, it's not that this sign or miracle failed. It comes to pass, okay? So this isn't just someone claiming to be a prophet or a dreamer this is someone who really is a prophet or a dreamer and it should be mentioned that it's not just like the prophecy or the dream is something something really lame like pick a card and then i'll show you what card you picked or hey you know that loaf of bread on top of your microwave yeah tomorrow tomorrow's gonna be two less slices okay <laughs> that's Probably not what we have in mind here. And I actually think there's some good textual reason to conclude this, okay? This phrase that's used inside Deuteronomy 13, sign or wonder, the way it's used is most interesting. You could, the Hebrew words basically just mean sign or wonder. But almost every single time that this phrase is used, a sign or a wonder, it's used in the context of, or in Deuteronomy and Exodus, it's used to refer to God's curses, that he showed to Egypt during the Exodus. Almost every single time the two words are used together as sign or wonder, it's used to talk about God's curses that he showed to Egypt. So, I mean, I was even reading in um, the book of Nehemiah this past week, and they use it the same way. They they start recounting God's works and his redemptive uh, story for them. And they end up using the same phrase, signs and wonders, to describe God's curses he showed to Egypt. So I imagine that you're probably just getting the point now, okay? This prophet or a dreamer of dreams is just screaming this idea of follow me because I speak the truth, okay? They come from the right people, they make the right predictions and they back it up with powerful signs and wonders. And you know who ironically fits this description in our passage, apart from the whole idolatry part? Is Moses. So the very guy writing Deuteronomy and giving these commands to Israel, Moses, fits this little rubric we have almost to a T. He's considered a prophet who arose among the people, and was God's chosen instrument to show signs and wonders to Pharaoh and Egypt. So, like, you could almost imagine being Moses, and you're just describing this command to Israel, like, well, if there happens to be a guy whose name rhymes with toses, and his hair is just beautiful, and anyway, and he rises among you, gives a nice prophecy or a dream, and it comes to pass, if he tells you after that to go abandon your God and seek false gods, kill him. And we didn't read verse 5 inside this passage, but that's the prescription for this kind of idolatrous prophet is death. And I think that's intentional that Moses kind of fits this rubric because it just shows us that Moses is not exempt, okay? There's no prophet Who's exempt from this test? If they are to be a prophet, whose sign or wonder comes to pass, they must also be a faithful prophet. They must also have fidelity to their Lord. And if you read the rest of chapter thirteen, you'll notice that God brings up some other examples too. So the first one is this example we have a prophet or a dreamer of dreams whose miracle prophecy comes to pass. The second example he gives is if your brother or your sister or your mama or your daddy comes around and says, hey, you know what would be really cool is if we also sought false gods and you're not supposed to listen to them. The third example is if your whole town, your whole city says, you know what, we're done with this god thing. We're going to go seek uh, Baal or whoever. And again, if they teach idolatry, they are not to be listened to. Now, there's another point that I think we can pull from these first couple of verses. So our second point is, do not be ruled by empiricism. Okay? Now, some of you are probably maybe feeling like, empiric what okay. Empiricism, you probably recognize the word. Some of you maybe actually know it. Um, but empiricism, you probably recognize because it's related to this word, Empirical. Okay? And it has to do, generally speaking, with observation, with senses and your perception, your five senses. Um, so the reason I chose this word empiricism is that in philosophy circles, okay, there's a branch of philosophy that likes to talk about how do we know what we know, what's true, things like that. And there's a school of thought called empiricism. And empiricism likes to make the general argument that our truest knowledge, or where knowledge starts, is going to be with our senses. What we can see, what we can hear, what we can taste, what we can touch. All of these would be what has, um, is the avenue for our ultimate knowledge, if that makes sense, okay? And so in our passage, you could probably understand why I chose this word, It's because something is very obviously being witnessed or seen or observed. These signs or wonders are not usually like unseen, right? And again, if we if we recount how the phrase is used for God's curses on Egypt, I mean, just think of a few of them, right? Blood or a river turning into blood, locusts coming and purging an entire land of their vegetation, sores just blossoming on people. Okay? So these are very visual experiences and signs, things that people could see, that people could feel, that sometimes they would hear, okay, what are we supposed to do that, okay, their signs and wonders are visual, and they're literally happening right before your eyes in this kind of a a passage, that this prophet, all these signs and wonders are happening before our eyes, if I came up today and I turned the Arkansas River, okay, and I just told you guys, like, hey, um, the Arkansas River is going to turn into blood today, and then sure enough we go out there and it turns into blood, most of you are probably going to be tempted to, to listen to more of what I have to say. Okay, If I could, if I could pull that off, and I assure you I can't, but if I somehow did that and turned the river into blood, there's going to be a lot of us that would be like, maybe we should listen to this guy, because he seems like he knows what's going on, or he's got a lot of power, right? There's a lot of power and persuasion. But what are you supposed to do? If I said, if I'd succeeded in that, and then I come back up and I said, oh, by the way, let's go follow Vishnu or someone like that. What are you supposed to do? Not listen to the voice of that prophet. And, I mean, if you had my way right now, I'd have you kill me, but, you know, well, <laughs> hopefully that doesn't ever happen. Now, obviously, you probably don't see much of that around here. We don't have prophets We don't have very many people who can just show crazy miracles. Maybe somewhere in the world they do, but especially in our culture, we just don't see that. But I think there's some ways that we could still take this passage and apply it in an empirical way. Let me ask you Are you tempted to disbelieve the Word of God when you see things that appear to conflict with your worldview? We believe God is good, and then we see how much evil is in the world. And we're tempted to do what? Doubt the word of God. And what are we supposed to do? Believe the word of God. What about if people started using scientific data to push this idea that uh, premarital sex or something like that would be healthy for an individual? And we as Christians stand strongly against this, right? What would you do? Do you believe it because this is scientific data being used? If we do, it means we're ruled by empiricism. But in this passage today, we are called to not be ruled by empiricism. We are to listen to the word of God and believe it over our eyes. And isn't it interesting that nowadays most people think the exact opposite? Okay? I had a student one time. Um, And I won't go into too much detail, but basically, this kid and I, we got along actually really well. We had a really good teacher-student relationship, but he was a staunch atheist, and I was a Christian, and he started a conversation with me because he saw one of my old school great Christian rap albums in the back of my computer, and he was asking what the album meant, so we started discussing, and then he starts making this argument, and this is before school had started, but um, he starts making this argument that he doesn't believe in God. There's no evidence for God. None at all. And he says, he makes this general argument right here, though. And he says, I would believe in God if he showed himself to me. And now, as Christians, we've heard that before, probably from people. And we're tempted sometimes to be like, huh. Like, why doesn't God show himself to people? That's, a, that's interesting. I don't know. how would I say to this guy? Well, anyhow, I don't think he appreciated my response Um, I essentially said, I don't believe you. (laughs) Um, I told him that I don't believe you would change your mind if God revealed himself to you. For one, I'm of of the opinion that there's no real atheist. According to Romans chapter 1, all people know the God, and they suppress that truth in unrighteousness. But number two, God already tried that. Okay? God already tried that in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And he revealed himself to men. And if you remember, everyone loved him. They just adored him and everyone, you know, they bent the knee and they said, yep, Jesus is Lord and he's the Messiah. And everyone just changed their hearts. Except they didn't, right? They crushed him. They pierced him. They nailed him to a cross. They cursed him. They mocked his claim to deity. They mocked his claim to being a Messiah. They hated him. In fact, we're reading in John 3 today in our ABF, and it says that men hated the light because they loved the darkness and their works were evil. So this kid was ruled by empiricism, so to say, right? If God shows himself to me, I'll believe it. But in reality, there's, that's not completely true, right? Most people who are ruled, or ruled by empiricism in this way are ruled by their hearts, people who in Jesus' time hated him. The scriptures say that Jesus came to his own, yet his own people did not receive him. So, so much for God revealing himself to man and man changing his heart. Do you remember the story inside uh, the book of Luke it's the story of the rich man, Lazarus. So remember, Lazarus is this poor man, and he dies. And the rich man, who I don't believe is named, he dies. And Lazarus goes to paradise, Abraham's bosom, okay? And this rich man goes to Hades. And while the rich man is in Hades, he's suffering in torment. And he wants to warn his brothers. And he's like, oh my gosh, well, this, this for lack of a better term, this sucks, okay? Um... And so what does he ask Abraham? He asks Abraham if Lazarus can go back and warn his brothers. Listen to this, what Abraham says. It's Luke 16, 29-31. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, Moses and the prophets is just a nice way of saying the Old Testament, generally speaking. Okay, And we see in the New Testament this theme, that the word of God is not only to rule us, but it is a more powerful form of revelation than what meets the eye. I mean, the fact that Abraham Abraham has to tell the rich man, that Moses and the prophets are to be, be, to be believed, and if they are not believed, they wouldn't even believe if a dead man came back from, or if a, yeah, if a man came back from the dead, right? And if you remember, some guy did come back from the dead, Jesus. And not everyone believed him. Some of them still tried to hide that truth. So in the case of those who are persuasive, prophets and dreamers, who gives signs and miracles that you could see with your eyes, hear, taste and touch. What are you supposed to believe in? Their signs? No. We are to believe and test the words or test their words according to the word of God and we are to believe the word of God. So the word of God is our ultimate rule. The Lord has commanded, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. The end, right? It doesn't matter how persuasive a worldview is. It doesn't matter how a person appears. If they can turn grass into shredded cheese in front of us, we are still to honor the Lord our God and not listen to the voice of that prophet if they should entice us to go away from our God and commit idolatry. Now that is ultimate authority. Okay? Okay? That's some real authority. The Word of God is so authoritative that it expects you to believe it over the words of any man in any world view, no matter how convincing. Okay. Our third point, our faithfulness to the Word of God reflects our love for Him. This is starting in verse 3. It says, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Does that sting at all? Reading a verse kind of like that, it stings me to some extent, and I wish it stung me more. Because I realize that I am not faithful to the Word of God on a daily basis. Okay? There, am, am, there are so many times that I often am tempted to believe the words of something else or someone else over the Word of God simply because things appear too persuasive. And then we remember that it says, The Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. So, I don't care necessarily, or I should say it doesn't matter, how much we've studied the topic, this idea of sola scriptura, or how well we can define what it means that the Word of God is ultimate, okay? It doesn't matter right now how well we are at explaining that concept. I want us to look into the mirror of God's law and ask ourselves, am I faithful to the Word of God? Do I submit myself to the teachings of the Scripture? Do I show that I love my God by showing that I value His Word and what it says? Or do I abandon the truth of my Lord for the persuasive words of a man? And do I forsake my God because things just appear too convincing? It's interesting that in this verse, God doesn't excuse Israel, right? Right? He doesn't excuse them as like, oh, that's just a, a slip of the mind, okay? Would you abandon the word of God for the words of persuasive men? I know people in my life, and most of you know people in your life, who have left the faith for something other than God. And what could we say about that? Is it because they simply looked at the evidence in a neutral manner and decided that Christianity is just not logically working out? Or is it because of a rebellious heart which would not submit itself to the word of God? How might God know that Israel loves him with all their heart and soul? Because out of love for him they will obey his commands. Jesus said the same. He said, if you love me, then keep my commandments. And now, I know some of us don't really like asking ourselves this kind of a question. This point as a whole is kind of a painful one sometimes. This idea that our fidelity our faithfulness to the word of God reflects our love for God is kind of a painful one we don't like asking ourselves these questions and maybe maybe you wish I hadn't brought it up but they are necessary questions read it again with me and ask me if it's not what the text is implying if not explicitly saying you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So Don't be afraid to ask yourself these questions and think about these things. As Christians, to love God is to love his word and submit ourselves to it. and It's that simple. Our final point is in verse 4 says to be ruled by the word is to be consumed with the word. To be ruled by the word is to be consumed with the word. Verse four says, you shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice and you shall serve him and you shall hold fast to him. Now, if I'm being honest here, this is a point that is more so based on like the cumulative narrative of the book. Okay? Maybe it doesn't appear like on first sight when you read this verse that God's asking Israel to be consumed with the word and be obsessed with it, but I think you would think so if you read the previous 12 chapters. So think about this. When we begin this passage, God is telling Israel what they must not do, right? He says... Do not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer of dreams. And then we get a positive commandment. You shall, right? You shall walk after God. You shall fear God. You shall keep God's commandments. You shall obey His voice. You shall serve Him. You shall hold fast to Him. Okay? It would be easy to just chalk this all up into one command, right? If you're just like reading through the Book of Deuteronomy and you read through verse four, it's easy if like we wanted to give a summary to just be like, "Oh yeah, general idea is just honor the Lord," right? But it's worded this way for a reason, right? Walking after and fearing God is just what's been repeated over and over and over and over in the Book of Deuteronomy. And what are the commandments of God? those commandments recorded in the book of Deuteronomy and the rest of the law of Moses. So it's not just obeying and following after commandments over here, right? We're talking about obeying the commandments in the book of Deuteronomy, okay? It actually becomes pretty clear by this point that we are in fact talking about one important question. And the question is essentially this. Whose voice will you listen to? Whose voice has the ultimate authority? Notice what was written, okay? Again, in verse 3. You shall not, what? Listen to the words of that prophet. And what does verse 4 say? You shall, and in the middle there, obey his voice, the Lord's voice. We're talking about Listening to voices and whose voice you're going to believe. And the Hebrew for hear or for uh, obey really means to hear and obey, okay? We are to hear and obey the voice of God as it's recorded in the Word of God, the Scriptures. So we are talking about an obsession, being consumed with the Word of God and devoted to our God as a lifestyle, and as part of our moral obligation to be faithful to our God and His words. Is reading and knowing the Scriptures a high priority for you? And can I just say this? That love for God and personal holiness is inseparable from the reading of the Scriptures. And I know there might be some arguments here and there. Sometimes we... Like when we struggle to give the Word of God our attention, we can sometimes come up with all these arguments, right? Well, maybe it's not necessary because not every Christian has access to the Bible. Maybe it's not necessary because um, I just don't got the time. Okay? And we can take all of these arguments over here, and then if we would just put them over here in this imaginary bucket, I like to call it the bucket of irrelevance. it becomes clear, very clear, that we are talking about obeying the word of God as a lifestyle, okay? They go hand in hand, reading the scriptures, personal holiness, loving the Lord, goes hand in hand. And I get that there are real struggles. Every Christian has their struggles to give the word their attention. Scheduling is an issue sometimes. We have to find time just to sit down and be alone with God in prayer or in the word. Sometimes it's kids that are getting in the way. I'm in college, and there's other students like myself here that know that schoolwork sometimes feels like it gets in the way. So I'm not just preaching at anyone. I'm preaching at everyone, including myself. That these are real struggles, but I'm going to press the point further anyway, okay? If you would recall back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, Not sound a little bit obsessive to be obsessed over the word of God. We should be obsessed with the word and the whole word. If you think about Psalm chapter or Psalm 1, verses 1 through 2, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the verse of the day on you version. (laughs) No. No, right? But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's obsessed with it. God even commanded the kings to essentially be consumed or obsessed with the word of God. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 18 through 19. This is what he says about if Israel was going to have a king. He says, and when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord, his God, by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. The word of the Lord was to rule the kings. Can you imagine if we would take the time to write out a copy of just one book of the Bible and then make that our personal copy to read every single day. And that's what they did. They didn't even have the whole Word of God at this time. And yet they're obsessed with the part of it, with the one book. And if you read First and Second Kings, you see exactly what happens when kings don't do this. When kings don't write down their own copy and meditate upon the law of God day and night. It's some pretty egregious stuff. Child sacrifice, rampant idolatry, all because they would not heed the word of the Lord. You see that we're all sinners and we sinned with our father Adam when we as a human race neglected the word of God. Preferring the word of a serpent over the word of the Lord. And every time we sin, it's because in that moment, we would rather rule ourselves by our own word or by following the word of another. And it's only through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross that we are forgiven for such heinous rebellion. I thought I would close with John the Baptist's words when he spoke about Jesus and this concept of the word of God. He says, For he whom God has sent, Jesus, utters the words of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. If you don't know Christ today, then we remind you that every single one of us here is a fallen sinner. Every single one of us here, even professing Christians, is a sinfully inconsistent Christian. And we are not saved because we are perfect adherents to the Word of God or because we are more consistent than other people, but we are saved because one man named Jesus Christ came and he suffered under the wrath and justice of God as the penalty for his people that he took upon himself. And there is a better word to be ruled by. It's the words of Christ and the words of God in this Bible. You you have an ultimate authority, whether you realize it or not. Most everyone does. It's just a matter of whether your ultimate authority is going to be sufficient, if, if it can even save you, or if it's going to result in a sinful digression into idolatry and foolishness. So we invite you, if you don't know Christ, to come to Christ today. And he says that any who come to him, he will not cast out. If you would pray with me. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. We thank you that we have a sure word and a word that is good. And a word that is for us and for our wisdom and for our guidance and it's provided by you and you've given it to us out of the abundance of your grace. We pray, Lord, that we would leave today understanding what it means to be a Christian who follows the word of God, that we would know what it is to submit ourselves to your word and to live lives which reflect that we believe that to be the case. We pray for anyone here who does not know your son Christ that they would not see a people who think we are better than them, but that they would see that Christ Jesus came to save sinners and that in him they can have fullness of life and forgiveness of sins. And I pray that they would see that the, whatever word or voice that they listen to is a sinking sand. And that your word is founded on a rock. And we pray this all in the name of Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.